0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: The advice given on this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended as investment advice. Please consult a financial advisor before undertaking any investment decisions. While the show's producers have tried to provide accurate and timely information and have relied on sources they believe to be reliable, the show may include inadvertent technical or factual inaccuracies. Ken Smith and Ethan Broga do not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the materials provided and expressly disclaim any warranties or merchantability or fitness for a particular purpose. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. Fasten in your seatbelts, you're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon, and welcome
2: to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner with a Master's Degree in Financial Analysis. And today, as every day, I have Ethan Broga. Hey, Ken. Hey. How's it going today? Good. Very good. Thanks. Good. Well, today, Ethan, um, I thought we'd finish playing some clips from our recent interview with Yale professor Roger Ibbotson. Okay. Um, We... uh, we had had him play a couple of clips a few weeks ago mm-hmm. relating to his. Uh, the company he's affiliated with, Zebra Capital, and the work he's doing on liquidity premiums mm-hmm. and a very interesting way of um, looking at diversifying a stock portfolio and uh, targeting a specific level of return over market portfolios through... The notion of li- of illiquidity generating a higher expected return. Mm-hmm. So I'd encourage you, if you're interested in that, listen to the the interview that or portion of the interview that we played uh, in our archives on that, and uh, you can certainly visit his website um, and you get get the information, the papers he's he's written. Um, before we uh, play those interview, get back to our interview with Roger though, Ethan. We're gonna uh, we're gonna give out our contact information. Talk a little bit about how we can, at our firm, Empirical Wealth Management, how we can help you as an investor or you as a financial advisor out there.
3: Yeah, that's right. As always, our our contact information, you can reach us at contact at empiradio.com, or our number is 800-254-0398. If you're interested in um, having us help you directly, if you're um, an individual investor looking for some... Some unbiased financial guidance, feel free to give us a call. We'd love to get together with you and review your portfolio. And if you're an advisor, perhaps already working in, in the industry, looking to perhaps make a change, we'd also love to hear from you as well.
2: And uh Ethan, we offered on on each show, the, the first person who does shoot us an email or gives us a call, we're going to um offer to do a, a, a free financial checkup as it were. Mm-hmm. So if you give us a call or shoot us an email, and doesn't matter where you're at in the country, um, we'd love to to uh, talk to you, find out, and help you answer questions about retirement. You know, how much money do you need to save for retirement, or if you're in retirement, do you have enough money, mm-hmm. um, or how much can you withdraw out of the portfolio? And we can run some some high level analysis on that for you. We can also take a look at your portfolio and uh, give you specific recommendations based on the the empirical approach that we take to investing um, on how you should diversify. We can help you reassess your risk, make sure that you're not taking more than you need or you're not taking too little in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So welcome you to to give us a call. Um, And I know if if anyone wants to submit a question that we'll read on the air about a financial planning topic, whether it's accounts, estate planning, budgeting, any of those kinds of things, or investments, shoot us an email um, at that contact at EMPI Radio, and we will give you a free book. Ethan has several favorite financial books, and we'll ship you a copy for free, one of our favorites. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, Ethan, anything else you want to talk about with regard to that? Maybe what, uh, what we're doing with advisors? Financial advisors? All
3: well, right. right. Well, I briefly yeah. mentioned it, but I'll mention it again oh, maybe okay. to, a little more in detail. Um, once again, we're looking to, to partner up with experienced professional advisors out there who, who are perhaps looking to make a change. Um, what we're offering, in essence, is a, is, is, a, is providing the infrastructure to help you grow your business. Uh, we've been doing this for quite a while now. We have a very good process, a very good infrastructure uh, at Empirical Wealth Management, and we'd like to have you benefit from, from, from that. So and in turn, you can focus on growing your business and helping clients directly. Great. Yep. Well, uh,
2: I'm going to go ahead, uh, Ethan. We, as we said, we 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 talked to Roger Ibbotson, and uh, we asked him some some what I believe are very pertinent and important questions, and goes in line with the theme we've been working. Which are what are several ways that steps that you can take to make better decisions about your money right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what should we have learned coming out of the financial crisis about how how to invest in our financial plan. So we've been talking about 17 different steps. We've I think we got up to number 13 um, last in last week's program. So yeah, that's right. We're going to keep hard charging on that topic, but uh, <laughs> I think um, what we talked to, some of the topics with Roger here I want to get into. So we asked him, one of the questions we asked him was uh, about the financial crisis and and returns on portfolios. I'm going to play that. Okay, and then we'll go to active versus passive, um, and a, a little bit of discussion we had about diversification and the value of looking at historical information. Let's do it. And you know the the crisis that we the financial crisis. Um, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, see, I mean traditional. Looking at history and how to build portfolios didn't really work very well because nobody, you know, predicted that this was going to happen. And um, I guess leading into my next question about is there is there going to be an equity premium, it seems like when we go through these, these times, people to say that, well, see, and you hear all the gold commercials and all these things saying, hey, uh, you know, stocks aren't, aren't where you want to be. Um, do you, do you, I guess what, what would be your comment on that?
4: And well, that's this sort of, you can look at the supply side or the demand side. From the supply side, the argument is, oh, the future looks really terrible right now, and, and uh, will, will we ever make any money anymore? And, on the demand side, you, you say, well, the future does look terrible, but we sort of recognize that, uh, that there's so many um, unusual things that can happen that can hurt us, that we aren't willing to pay too high of a price for anything, because uh, we know that we know that uh, uh, we know that we're buying risky things. We know that they're subject to sometimes they say black swans or a very unusual events that we could never forecast. Well, that's true. We're always going to be surprised by lots of different things. But for those very reasons, risk is always actually more than you might have thought it was. But that also means that generally you have to have risk premiums that might be reasonably high to capture the fact that buying stocks is risky, and and there should be an equity risk premium because who would ever want to buy stocks if if you didn't get a big payoff? If you thought there was no uh, payoff for buying stocks, then you wouldn't have any buyers at all. You basically you'd re- we'd all rather be in cash because uh, we don't like to suffer the surprises all the time, especially what happened in 2008, but it's happened in the early decade. Uh, all, all these kinds of things always surprise us, and we're, uh, the only real benefit we get in the end is that, on average, we make a good return.
2: Okay, then that was a clip about the financial crisis there, and basically what I believe Roger's saying is, you know, these kinds of things are going to happen... Um, and when they do happen, they should solidify or reinforce the view that that there is risk in the market, and it's no that doubt. very risk mm-hmm. that over time generates a greater return than owning very safe investments like treasuries
3: or CDs. Yeah, we've talked about that, right, where you take on risk. And really what the risk really translates to is the opportunity for higher returns than non-risky assets, in essence. And not the guarantee, yeah, not the guarantee, particularly
2: over very short periods of time, so that's why it's important to get get your your mix of investments correct. I think far more important, um, and we talked about in the interview the study that he just printed on the asset allocation mm-hmm. decisions, um, far more important, assuming that you're you're going to be a diversified investor. Meaning that you're not just going to pick one or two securities for your portfolio. Um, it's it's that that exposure to equity markets versus bond markets, as an example, that's the key determinant in how much risk you should be taking. At least as an investor, you should make that the issue by ma- by making a commitment to be diversified, so that it won't be the the risk associated with one company going. Going under. So if you own a lot of your your company stock um, in your portfolio, and your personal wealth is consistent or com- 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 composed of mm-hmm. excuse me that that stock, and not only that, but you're working there, um, that's a lot of risk, um, both in your financial capital and mm-hmm. your human capital mm-hmm. that you're, you're taking that should be diversified. And, and, and reduced significantly. But once you do reduce that, the decision then is, okay, well, how much exposure do I have to riskier assets like stocks? Mm-hmm. And how much should I have to bonds? And far more important is that decision than the notion of trying to go out and beat the market by 1% or 2% a year, which I use that number because I think most professional managers, if... It, if they could beat the market by 1% or 2% a year for any consistency, would think that's a very good, uh, a, a very well-performing um, portfolio. Yeah, no doubt. You know, most managers aren't going out going, hey, for the next 20 years, I'm going to be able to beat the market by 5 or 10% a year. And yeah, if not, can, not most. No, they can cover their fees, and and if they'd be thrilled to add one 1% to 2% a year on top of that.
3: I, th- I think the other point that Roger was making there, uh, talking about the equity, the equity premiums, uh, Ken, you can jump in any time here, but I, I was thinking that, you know, when is the equity premium going to be higher? You know, is it after markets go up or after they go down, at least in terms of expectations? And thinking back uh, to the crisis, you know, we hit the near the market bottom back in, in March of 2009. Looking at the valuations uh, among the various asset classes at that time, you know, the valuations had to come down a lot. Right. I mean, they they compressed significantly from where they were, um, you know, at the peak of the market back in 2007. And I was just thinking, boy, it'd be, it's really something, looking at the different valuations among the asset classes at that time, and, and making the decision, knowing what the valuations are to sell stocks, mm-hmm. you know, that would be very, at the time even, would be a pretty, I don't know, imprudent thing to do, if, you, as long as you have a diversified portfolio. I would think because when valuations actually compress the likelihood of the of getting an equity premium over the next, you know, time period is is really strong, right?
2: Yeah, we were saying that uh you know, it's if you think of a how a seesaw works t- when stock prices tend to decline and when you're on the downstroke of the seesaw, the farther down you go, mm-hmm. the greater the the ability and the tendency to spring back up. Um, yes. And so we've see, we see that time and time again where the market goes through some pretty tough times and people feel very scared. And so they say, hey, jeez, I don't want to own stocks if the world's potentially coming to an end here. Mm-hmm. So they drive the prices of those stocks down to very low, low prices. And as that that risk of the world coming to an end starts to subside, stocks have a tendency then to bounce back quickly. So the return expectation after they've started that they've gone down is mm-hmm. much higher right. well, we need to jump into a break let's go ahead and do that and we'll get back into some more of our interview with uh, Roger Robinson
6: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately one in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One: A Conversation of Hope, brought to you by Endemica, hosted by Terry Oranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism. Autism. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat silly radio to thrive by. When it
1: comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
2: Welcome back. This is Ken Smith with Empirical Investing Radio, your host. Ethan had to step out momentarily. I'm going to roll on with the program because the show must go on. And uh, we were working through some of our interview clips with Roger Ibbotson from Yale University. He's a professor there and uh, has published multitudes of peer-reviewed academic papers and all the key journals. Um, as we progressed through this, we uh, we were asking him questions uh, about diversification, about active investing versus passive. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to play in, in the value of, of historical information. I'm going to go ahead and dive into these clips, and uh, we'll keep, we keep charging ahead. And uh, remember, if you, if you need help figuring out what you need to retire, what you need to meet your financial goals, and what type of portfolio you should be putting together to do so, give us a call at uh, 1-800-254-0398. Okay, Simon, I'm going uh, to roll the reel here. I want to uh, play the clip about um, diversification. So going through the crisis, has it changed your view on how a portfolio should be built or how someone should change their asset allocation over, over their, throughout their lifetime?
4: Well, some people have said what diversification didn't work. And I've sort of indicated that, you know, the market pulls us down and the market pulls us up. But diversification still really does help. Uh, um, first of all, uh, if, you, if you, you wouldn't want to hold just a couple of different stocks, you really do want a diversified set of stocks. D- diversification definitely helped at the stock level. A diversified stock portfolio was far less risky than a concentrated stock portfolio, and then at the most basic level, stocks versus bonds. uh, It turned out that the the one thing that did well in the crisis uh, in in 2008 was uh, were basically high quality bonds. They actually went up, and so and when you think of putting together an asset allocation, it sort of starts with Stocks and bonds. Then you may add a lot of other things, and you may break the stocks into categories and the bonds into categories. But basically, high-quality bonds really helped you f- through that crisis. And uh, so, diversification of all your problems it won't it won't uh, protect you completely from the ups and downs of the economy. But it, it it's it's one of the best tools we have here course and it does reduce your risk
2: so for our listeners how how many stocks because i think there's a lot of discussion and confusion about that we all almost everyone i a lot of people say you should be diversified i think where opinions vary is what that means (laughs) is it 20 stocks is it a hundred is it a thousand for your equity component what's your if you're willing to comment what's your view on what is diversified enough
4: well it definitely should be in the hundreds of stocks actually because you in order to hold a concentrated portfolio First of all, some people say it should be some low number like twenty. That would be true if they were really independent of every every each each of the stock. And so you can start to say, Uh actually, the systematic the unsystematic risk of truly independent things goes down with one over the square root of the number. So you can say one over the square root of twenty gets rid of most of the number. But um, uh, but actually, that's if they're totally independent. What actually happens is any money manager tends to focus on some theme, and even if they have instead of 20 stocks, or even if they have 100 stocks, if they're focusing on that, a certain theme, they're, they're they're going to be concentrated, and they're going to have more. Uh, they'll be loaded up on something, and they won't be that diversified. So the, certainly, it's best to hold. I would say, really, hundreds.
2: Okay, there's Roger talking about diversification. We've said it many times on the show. Incredibly bright man telling you that you need to own more than just a handful of stocks. So a lot of the uh, active, professional, I guess you could call them professional managers out there... Uh, like like to claim that you're better served focusing on a uh, a small number of stocks I, I i've always thought that's nonsense and the data is pretty clear about that um so next i asked roger about active investing versus passive i'm going to roll that clip do you do you take a position on a on the active versus passive debate are you on either side of that fence or well
4: i'm um, i'm on both sides of that fence <laughs> okay. <laughs> that way, yeah.
2: It should, should invest. I really
4: think uh, you should be mostly passive, unless you really have an edge on something. Okay. And, and uh, if you have an edge, then of course you should take advantage of that edge. Now the real problem is most people don't have that edge, but they pretend they do. I think it's sort of like uh, I'm not a good tennis player, but I'll give you a tennis story. Okay. If you have a real edge. You should run to the net and take advantage of it. Um, um, and uh, but if you don't have the edge, you should be back. The worst thing you can do is be at the net when you don't have the edge. They'll just hit it right past you, or <laughs> or actually play sort of in the middle, like pretend you have an edge. In fact, in tennis, they always call that area no man's land. You shouldn't play in the middle. You should <laughs> because oh, wow. uh, you're you're really getting caught by everybody basically. <laughs> so you you essentially have to. Exploit the edges you have, but don't presume that you have an edge on in everything. And in, in, in by the way, and I go back to the, the I talked in the past about these liquidity type products. That's an edge we think we have. We think that we can buy the less liquid stocks, and that people aren't paying enough attention to that, and you can get higher returns for it. On the other hand, you we you don't want to pretend you have edges and things that you don't have because that's really where you're going to. Um, uh, lose out. Uh, it's like joining a poker game with a bunch of experts to take advantage of you. Right,
2: right, right. Ethan, do you have any? Well,
3: I would just maybe to clarify on that point, so would you say that most, uh, probably most, most investors, individual investors, probably don't have the edge. Would you say that's true?
4: They probably don't, and that's why they actually uh, in some cases, like passive funds or index funds mm-hmm. uh, might be a, a, a good a good vehicle for a lot of their investments. And would they you still need to be diversified and cover all kinds of the market, small caps, large caps, growth value, and I would say less, less and more liquidity. They need those they sort of things. Right. But but they don't necessarily have an edge on on uh, which stocks to buy or even which mutual ones to buy,
3: usually. And w- would, you, would you, how would you categorize most most active managers, then, people who run mutual funds? Would you say they have an edge as well or not?
4: Well, on average... By definition, it uh, it actually turns out to be a zero, we call it a zero-sum game. Right. That uh, an active manager has to, if he's going to outperform the market, I'll say she. But actually, the woman might do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so if an active manager, if she's going to outperform the market, there has to be another manager that uh, underperforms the market. It might be an individual or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, um, so, but they sum to zero because you, the active manager, in order to get a positive, a positive alpha, let's call it. In order to get that positive alpha, they have to basically extract it out of somebody who has a negative alpha, and, and and the alpha sums to zero. Understood. So that's why you know if we, even though I don't think markets are literally efficient, there's lots of discrepancies. Right. Uh, for most of us, if you don't have the edge, we should act. As if they're efficient, because even though poker games are unfair, it doesn't mean we want to join them
2: okay so i I find this this part of the interview pretty interesting and and I wanted to to follow up with some definition here of what is this active versus passive because I've done literally hundreds of of client talks and uh, investor education talks and and after you've done this for so long, you, you take for granted that people understand some of the, the lingo that gets thrown around in our industry. And so uh, I was always surprised where we after a discussion about incorporating what we're calling passive investments, people thought that they were passive. And I had to explain, well, no, you know, simply because you don't trade a lot does not mean that you are not a passive investor uh, or not an active investor. I'm sorry. So the difference is I define it. Um, is if if you have the ability to own every stock in the market and capture the return of that market so if it was the United States investable market um, any portfolio you construct that's different you may be making an active decision to do so so if there are 500 large companies in the S&P 500 index we know there are if I decide I'm only going to hold 40 Whether I trade in and out of them frequently or not is not the issue um, in my view. It's that I'm placing emphasis on a very small subset of the entire selection choice universe that I have. So I'm making an active decision and and I would only do that with costs being as low as they are. I would only do that if I thought I was going to be able to increase my return in some way or somehow reduce the risk of that subset. Um, We've got to take a break. I want to talk a little bit more about this active versus passive discussion and what they mean so that you can make better decisions when you're deciding on how to build and construct your investments. We'll be right back.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at EMPIRadio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, welcome back. This is Ken Smith,
2: certified financial planner and CEO of Seattle-based wealth management company Empirical. We were talking about the definition of active versus passive investing and what it means to me. after our discussion with Roger Ibbotson, and uh, I was expressing that any portfolio that exp- exposes you to a certain type of risk um, or different characteristics, um, other than owning an entire index or an entire group, a large group, enough stocks to really control the group of an area of the stock market, is an active strategy. So it's not a function of how frequently you trade. If you just bought 10 stocks and held them forever, you made an active decision to make your portfolio look significantly different than a portfolio of all 5,000 of the U.S. stocks, as an example. So it's important to, in our view, to understand that active versus passive is not a function of how frequently you trade, because it, it seems a little misleading at times. Um, I'm going to go ahead, and I want to make sure we can squeeze in a couple more clips from from Roger. And uh, one of these clips was about um, his work in the area on a study that that gets cited very frequently in our industry about how much or how important is this idea of asset allocation—stocks, bonds, other investment types—versus stock picking or or the the active decisions that get made. So I thought that'd be a good thing to roll into. We'll go ahead and cue that up. Well, one of the things we wanted to ask you about, Rogers, we we try to read as much research as we can get our hands on. And you recently uh, put it, I think it was in the uh, Financial uh, Analyst Journal, um, or the Journal of? That's right, the Financial Analyst Journal. Okay, good. The title of the article is The Importance of Asset Allocation. And from what I gathered in that article, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about it, That. there was a lot of confusion, I guess, from investors or people about what, um, how much, uh, how great a role asset allocation plays in determining returns.
4: Well, yeah, that really has been a confusing topic because, basically, people ask usually ask the question, "What percentage of my return comes from my asset allocation or from my asset allocation policy?" Well, the answer to that question actually turns out to be surprisingly 100% all, all of your return all of your return comes from your asset allocation because basically your return comes from two parts your your kind of your your policy return and or, or your passive return and your active return it turns out i guess the, so the bad news for active managers in general but it's definitional is across all active strategies they sum to zero or, or even perhaps a negative number if you consider all the costs. So if you say, what percentage of my return comes from asset allocation, the answer has to be all of it, uh, the, because the, the active part of it is, is sums to zero. But some people's return, of course, some people have very good returns, and some people have very poor returns. They do worse than, worse than their asset allocation policies. So they do worse and better, but if you're talking about return levels, and that's the key point, levels of returns, the answer is all of the return comes from policy. Actually, though, the conversation gets deeper than this, though, because people really want to know about why your returns differ than my returns, for example. Why do we, why do we differ in our returns? Right. Well, it turns out that if you talk about why we differ in our returns, that, that answer turns out to be about 50% from your, uh, from your asset allocation policy. You have a different asset allocation policy than I do. You have more stocks and I have more bonds. And, and, but on the other hand, you have different stocks than I do. And so about 50% of the, in this case, the key word is variation. The differences between your returns and mine are, are it's about equal. About half of the differences are coming from, from our asset, different asset allocation policies, and about half the differences are coming from our, our actual different stocks and fees and so forth that we might pay. So I, I hope that wasn't too complicated of, uh, of an answer, and I could even go further on this if you wanted, but uh, maybe I've gone too far already.
2: <laughs> no, no, that's really good, and I think if we were going to go further, I think the average person uh, who has been presented this study by a financial advisor usually is where I've I've seen it in materials a lot, and in and presentations and things that I've heard. It's well, you know, ninety plus percent of the return you're going to get is not which stock you pick or which manager you select. It's which asset cl- classes that you're exposing yourself to, and I guess related to what what you're what you're saying is, well, that's that's not necessarily true.
4: Well, you know, that again, you're talking about. And those studies were on, these were the uh, two different studies uh, based on uh, Brinson and some co-authors, uh, the, originally the Brinson-Hood and B. Bauer study, and they looked at the time series, the, re, the time series variation in returns, and those time series variation returns actually have three parts of them, saying, in, say, in 2008, most, most, most uh, portfolios were down but 2009 most of them were up uh, well the, the, the three sources of variation in a time series return the first one is just the general market movement and actually that's the most important one that's about about seventy percent or more seventy five percent of of the actual movement just has to do with the overall up and down of overall markets if you take the last two pieces of that one is how, how again, have how we differ in in our asset allocation policy, and how we differ in our active management. They're roughly equal, but that's how you get that 90 percent. You actually, if you take that 75 percent plus the two other parts, the asset allocation piece, mm-hmm. which is say it's almost 15 percent, you get you get a number close to 90 percent. So what the what those Brinson studies were actually doing was they were taking the time series of market movements and the asset allocation policies together and they put it into one, one bucket, and that's why they called it 90%. But I actually think it's more reasonable to think there are three different buckets here because we, we really differ. Most of us are relatively similar in our asset allocation policies. We're, we all suffer the ups and downs of the markets. Right. So that first piece the ups and downs of the market is actually the dominant piece and then the other two pieces are about equal
2: and you you mentioned uh, active manager said on for a- actor managers it's a hundred percent is described the combination of these right is a hundred percent explains the
4: return the return yeah. level yeah the hundred percent okay. of the return level is is uh, is explained by active is, I'm sorry by passive management because the active management averages zero across the managers, but not 100% of the variation because a lot of uh, a lot of people have had very successful active managers or very unsuccessful active managers. So when you look at the variation, it's no longer, uh, that, that all these studies are really about variation of returns, right. not about return levels.
2: Is there is something that if, if the average investor here should take away in terms of how they are choosing to build and construct their portfolio as a result of this these studies.
4: Well I still would say that asset allocation policy, the basic structure of your portfolio is very important. Um, It's not going to erase, uh, it's not going to protect you completely from say 2008 when the financial crisis comes, because we're all going to be hurt by those sort of things. But asset allocation is very important and it does uh, create the diversification, but there's diversification at two levels. You will need to be diversified in your asset classes. You also need to be diversified in your individual stocks and bonds that you might select. So you need you need diversification at both levels. So and it it just basically these studies tell you how important how, how important it is, and you can actually get rid of most of this, this the uh, last two categories of risk by diversifying adequately, but you'll never get rid of the basic market movement.
2: Okay, so that clip Roger talked about his recent study and uh, on asset allocation and uh, the fact that that not the asset allocation itself is very important. The decision you make, Ethan. Glad to have you back here. Glad to be here. Um, between stocks, bonds and, and other asset asset types mm-hmm. are very important. But it's not in in itself ninety plus percent of the of the differences in returns that I get versus the portfolio that you get. Um, there that in just the two of us, you know, the market as a whole will get those returns. That when it, he was saying, basically, if everyone in the in the market is going to get market returns because the, we each offset each other, I beat the market, you underperform the market. We net if the net effect is we get combined market returns. Right. Um, that whole arithmetic idea of of how the market works, but individually there can be great differences between my portfolio and your portfolio. So it's very critical that you understand how your portfolio, in addition to the decision of stocks and bonds, it's very important that you understand how those stocks and bonds are being managed and put together. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's our view, and apparently Roger's view, that you need to be incredibly diversified. And uh, we've got to take a quick break here. But when we come back, I'd like to talk a little more about that. Play one more clip from Roger and then talk about, uh, get back to our list of successful steps that you should be taking right now to make great money decisions. We'll be right back.
6: Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel.
1: The Boardroom, to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact. At empiradio.com. Now back to Ken and Ethan.
2: Welcome back. This is Ken Smith and Ethan Broga, Empirical Investing Radio. We were just uh, playing some of our clips with Roger Ibbotson. Ethan, you had something you wanted to say.
3: Yeah, I just want to remind all listeners here that uh, if you're you have a question on maybe the topic that we're discussing today, or you have some other financial or investing related topic you'd like to, to ask on the air or yeah. have a question asked on the air, we would love to hear from you. Even we would reach love us, to. Reach us at contact at empiradio.com or 800-254-0398. And I guess we probably should also mention this is actually a recorded show. Yeah. This one today and actually uh, many of the ones we have been doing in the past are recorded. Uh, so the number that's been given out, the, the other 800 number, um, actually, won't get you to us while this is playing. So again, the number is eight hundred two five four zero three nine
2: eight. Yeah, we, we're trying to build a uh, a groundswell uh, of fans so that we can we can go live and take live calls. But you know, ab- absent right now, that we're just piloting the show. Right. So we, we figured it, we would do the recording in that. So that number they're giving, you know.
3: Is it okay to discuss discuss uh, statistics on the air relative to the listeners and shit?
2: I don't know. I mean, there's 3,000 or so screaming fans on average. Right now. We're working up to. Which is a large uh, large number. Yeah. Does that include everyone here in our office?
3: Well, we have about (laughs) 300 of those people here, I guess, so.
2: Okay. Okay. I kind of like what you're saying. All right.
3: Okay. So let's dive
2: back into this thing. Uh, one more question, one more clip that I wanted to play from Roger Ibotson because in our discussion about things that investors can do with their money right now, um, one of those was know your market history. And so we asked him, why is it important? Why should anyone care about historical market data? And we'll play the clip, and then we'll, you and I can comment about it. Sounds good. Okay, let's do it. I think most... Um, advisors are probably familiar with you because of the stocks bonds and bills charts that i see everywhere i go um and i wanted to ask you a little bit about um you know as we as we take calls and we meet individuals a lot of times when we talk about longer term historical data of uh markets you know stock look at this is what the stock market's done this is the research that shows what historically has happened here what what I I hear a lot of times, and some of this is, I think, coming from, I don't know if it's conventional Wall Street type firms or whatever, where They say, hey, all that stuff is kind of nonsense. What what really matters is what's going on right now, because things are, are changing. It's always very dy- our economy and our markets are very dynamic. So looking at what stock, you know, going back to 1792 and and looking at, um, you know, what the e- how to calculate the equity premium way back from there to here, that that's kind of Irrelevant because those are we were in a different market back then, or our economy was different. And I guess the question I'm trying to get to is why should why should investors care about the historical information on on securities markets, and why do academics spend so much time digging through that that
4: data? Well, you know, we, we, we it's true uh, t- obviously things are different today than they were at, at times in the past, but uh, we have to. Uh, look at history because history is sort of our only data set really we have to work with here and and even though things have changed there's a lot of basic things that have, have stayed the same so often for example if you go like in the tech bubble in the 1990s everybody was saying well this time it's different you know they, these these tech companies really are worth this much and people compared it to say well we look at the inventions of the past when when we had automobiles and so forth or airplanes you don't necessarily get that kind of valuations from something new like this, even if it is changing changing the world in various ways. And so, because uh, even now you look at automobile companies, of course, over the last uh, hundred years, you know, we're left with very few survivors here. And, and most of the entities that try to do these things actually do not succeed. It's, 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 uh, Shepard called this, uh, 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 creative destruction. And, and so that's that's what's happening in, in markets all the time. But you have to look at long, long periods to actually see this because you get caught up in the short-term excitement of the markets. You actually, to get some sense of what markets really might have for returns and what the risks are really like, you actually have to look at them through all kinds of scenarios. And it's true that no one, no life... Uh, we don't go in a circle, so it just repeats it over and over again. Every time's different, but but we do repeatedly have uh, bull markets and crises, and uh, the actually uh, slowdowns in volatility, then picks up pick in volatility. Yeah. There's a, there's just so much to be learned from history that uh, that actually I think that the people who actually do look at a lot of history are the ones that have the, the clearest perspective on what's, what's actually happening
2: in our... Okay, Ethan. Um, I, th- I think we should chat about this for a moment. Sure. So that was Roger talking about the importance of knowing your market history and why academics and researchers spend so much time digging and looking into the historical data. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us, I think it's, it's a situation where if you know the curves in the racetrack, because you've been through it and you looked at it before you got on the racetrack, you're better prepared to handle that racetrack when you're actually, when it's race time. And so if you don't know, if you don't know the history of that, right? And right. you just start racing, right? You don't know what curve is coming. But if you know that, hey, I, I know what type of track this is, because I've been on the, I, I've been on it before, or a golf course, right? Where you know where the, where the obstacles are. Um, you're, you're, you're far likelier to have a better experience. And stay disciplined. And I think that the value of, of knowing your market history is, as Roger's saying, is we've gone through uh, volatile, more volatile times, mm-hmm. less volatile times. We've gone through raging bull markets and extremely difficult bear markets. Um, by looking at the averages, right, the data points, you have an idea of what's normal. Right. So you get an, a sense of, geez, if we are over or undervalued, that there, uh, you have some norm that you establish over time. If if you're building a portfolio, you have an idea of how much risk you're actually taking. When you know in the past how far the portfolios declined, and I think a lot of people get involved in strategies when they really don't understand their market history. And what it does is it quickly it uh, quickly dispels them from the game. You know they they get frustrated and uh, and they give up at the worst possible time. And we see that in the empirical data on. The money going in and yeah, out the of the cash flows. And the returns. Right. Right. The dollar weighted, actual returns of inv- that investors get.
3: Oh, yeah, exactly. So it's
2: an enormous issue. Um, and so that's why we spend a lot of time with our clients, educating them on the portfolios that we construct, that how they would have performed in historical contexts.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And Ethan, we're running out of time for the show. I want to invite you once again, <clears throat> if you're a listener to the show, Listener of the show.
3: <clears throat> Sorry about that there, Ken. Frogging yeah. You. Is that, is that a, a frog in your throat? Yeah, something.
2: Uh, if you're listening to the show, <laughs> we want to invite you to come in and or contact us for a free uh, portfolio checkup or financial checkup. We'll run some retirement centers. Make sure you know how much money you need to achieve your goals and the best way to get there. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks a lot and have a great week. Take care. Uh,
1: We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you next week. The advice given on this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended as investment advice. Please consult a financial advisor before undertaking any investment decisions. While the show's producers have tried to provide accurate and timely information and have relied on sources they believe to be reliable, the show may include inadvertent technical or factual inaccuracies. Ken Smith and Ethan Broga do not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the materials provided and expressly disclaim any warranties or merchantability or fitness for a particular purpose.